it's important to practice true meditation when you are calm and relaxed. That's when the meditation really begins. It's not that you practice meditation in order to feel calm and relaxed and less stress, less fear, less anxiety, right? You can use mindfulness techniques to help you become relaxed first and then you become ready for meditation. And essentially, we want to create a little bit of distance between you or your true self and your thoughts. So this is where you start to realize that I am not my thoughts. My thoughts do not dictate my actions. That observing dimension, the witnessing dimension, that is the true nature of oneself. When you create that distance between your thoughts, you realize you are not your thoughts, and then you have a little bit more clarity in the mind. And when you have clarity, you have freedom to choose and how to act a little bit more consciously in your everyday life. You're listening to Interested with Donna Edda, a show that brings you ideas for wellness. Gianni Moani joins me to scratch the surface of spiritual learning, sacred text, and meditation. I say scratch the surface because it is truly such a big and complex topic, but an important one to explore. He's the co-founder of Ikigai, a boutique and wellness studio in Hong Kong, named after the traditional Japanese concept of a reason for being. Gianni was first and foremost an athlete and football player playing professionally in the US and Brazil in his 20s. He dabbled in yoga as a complementary practice to improving his sports performance. And from there, he embarked on a journey of self-exploration, living at an ashram in the foothills of the Indian Himalayas to studying yoga with mentors from various lineages. Today, he appreciates all eight limbs of the discipline. And in this conversation, our hope is to share the ancient wisdom that can help us lessen the internal suffering and experience a bit more peace, lightness, and clarity in our everyday lives. He is an exciting new voice to the city's yoga landscape. So without further ado, I give you Gianni Mawani. How did you begin your spiritual journey? I grew up wanting to play football uh, professionally. So I was very athletic, playing a lot of sports. A few famous football players said that uh, they started practicing yoga and they were able to play into their 40s and uh, be a little bit injury free and recover well and things like that. Once I got into that world, I started to meet different people in that space. And I feel very lucky that uh, I met my teachers uh, who guided me more into the spiritual side um, of yoga. So learning about the scriptures, uh, learning about its roots, where it comes from. I think a massive uh, pivotal point was um, when I I uh, left Hong Kong and went to India and stayed in an ashram there for a little while mm. and uh, learned from uh, sannyasins and monks and uh, also the, the students around as well. So, Can you dissect the concept of meditation and mindfulness according to the scriptures? Uh, mindfulness is a, sort of a, a newly coined term used in modern day scientific terminology to make it a little bit more accessible for people because sometimes when you read the scriptures uh, it can feel a little bit uh, woo-woo or a little bit out there but it's actually based in a lot of uh, concrete structure analytical thinking. Mindfulness is the ability to uh, enhance your awareness. Uh, you can use your five senses to do this in different ways. In uh, yoga in Sanskrit it's called uh, pratyahara 
um, which is essentially ma- essentially mastery over the five senses. It's one of the parts of Ashtanga Yoga, which we'll, I'm we'll sure, touch definitely. on a little bit. Meditation is a little bit different. Um, according to the scriptures, it is the gateway to understanding your true nature. And that in Advaita Vedanta philosophy is uh, known as the, the, the self, pure consciousness, the capital I. When you are practicing mindfulness, you are uh, using a technique uh, that uses your five senses and you are enhancing your awareness to sort of bring yourself back to uh, a balanced, centered state. So this is a tool, this is a technique, this is an ability to calm and relax the mind, um, to keep it focused, to keep it clear, to keep it concentrated. Meditation is different because the true form of meditation requires no effort, no action. It's a letting go, it's a sort of a surrender, it's um, the art of witnessing uh, without judgment, without involvement. So that that's the distinction. One is more of a tool and a technique to relax you and calm you and keep you focused, whereas the other one is uh, more of surrendering into your true nature according to the scriptures. Can you describe the idea of surrendering to our true nature? What does that mean? Let's not create imaginations and fantasies about it. Let's keep it uh, practical and keep it realistic as well. So a lot of the time... Our minds are very, very active. It's, it's thinking, it's feeling, there are all these emotions. And we have to quieten the mind first, still the mind, and then uh, observe things the way they are, as they are, mm. uh, in reality. Let me break it down in a way how mindfulness can be used as a tool, as a gateway to a meditative state. That'd be great. Let's say you have a regular meditation practice. How does this this work? Um, so essentially, it's important to practice med- true meditation when you are calm and relaxed. That's when the meditation really begins. It's not that you practice meditation in order to feel calm and relaxed and less stress, less fear, less anxiety. Right? You can use mindfulness techniques to help you become relaxed first and then you become ready for meditation. Mm. Right. So uh, there's this misconception. I'm stressed and therefore I need to do meditation and therefore I will feel calmer afterwards. Yeah. Uh, you're still caught up in the cycle of thoughts. And essentially, we want to create a little bit of distance between you or your true self and your thoughts. So this is where you start to realize that I am not my thoughts. My thoughts do not dictate my actions. So that awareness, that observing entity if you will that observing dimension the witnessing dimension um that is the true nature of oneself Uh, and when you tune into who or what is doing that thinking that's when you're connecting to your true self because you create that distance between your thoughts when you create that distance between your thoughts you realize you are not your thoughts and then you have a little bit more clarity in the mind and when you have clarity uh, you have freedom to choose and how to act act a little bit more consciously in your everyday life. In the ancient scriptures, the uh, especially Advaita Vedanta, which is translated into the non-dual philosophy of uh, uh, Vedanta, and Vedanta is the final part of uh, ten thousand year old, the oldest scriptures in the world um, text, which 
basically means the end of knowledge. In my opinion, it's the closest blueprint that I have found to sort of understanding concepts of life, if you will. Why, who are we? Why are we here? What is our purpose? What, what are we supposed to do? These kind of things. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert in it, um, but uh, I feel very lucky to have teachers who I study from who have shared this knowledge. Uh, and uh, I definitely feel having... Uh, the knowledge and applying the knowledge in everyday life um, has truly helped, and I think it can, it will definitely help everyone who dabbles in it uh, to some degree. How has it helped you? Basically, understanding how the mind works, uh, the importance of a holistic uh, lifestyle, and also the knowledge of what to do, when to do things, clarity of mind. Again, it, it, it gives freedom. The whole purpose of all these texts is to end the suffering in the world, the suffering in the mind, suffering in the body, and essentially people want uh, peace and liberation from the suffering. Sanskrit term called moksha, liberation. So nothing really around you in your everyday life uh, changes, nothing external changes, but your internal state of being is so aware, so clear, that um, you know how to interact with the world uh, effortlessly. I used to think that suffering was a part of life and that it's inevitable and it's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But then I'm learning that it's all perception. There's definitely perception there, but there's also experience. Um, and there's a difference. Can you expand on that? A perception is one person's opinion versus someone else's opinion based on, I guess, a certain circumstance. Whereas, like, let's say there's a universal experience, like a true universal experience that exists at all times so you and i both see the cup and in a certain color you you say it's red and if i say it's blue that doesn't make the cup blue because of my perception the, the universally the cup is red color if you say for example there's there's an experience where you feel something someone says something to you and you feel uneasy about it but their intention was different, that's your perception of it. You don't know that that's a true reality. So there is a difference between true reality and the perception of something. Yeah. So then how do we apply the concept of experience to end suffering? I think this would be quite a good way to go on to how uh, yoga is a tool to help with this, which we can touch on... Uh, what is exactly Ashtanga Yoga and uh, how that as a tool can help people experience things with clarity and live a little bit more of a fulfilling, peaceful, joyful, blissful, pleasant life. Great. Right? Yes. So um, earlier you asked me, what is uh, Ashtanga Yoga? What is a real Ashtanga Yoga? <laughs> sure, yes. Okay, so... Um, I think maybe many of your audience who do practice yoga, they all see the, the term Ashtanga Yoga when there's a group class. And uh, when, when you attend those types of classes, it's uh, a specific sequence of postures. There's some chanting at the beginning, some mantra at the beginning and at the end of the class. Um, it is sometimes uh, led by a teacher or not, which is the Mysore. This uh, style of teaching... Uh, based on what you see in these group classes in a lot of studios, got quite famous due to a teacher called Sri Patabi Joyce. But when you look at the meaning of Ashtang Yoga from the 
ancient Vedic text 10,000 years ago, uh, Ashta means eight and Anga means limbs. So it's like a network of eight limbs. It's called the eight-limbed path. And this is the fundamental foundation of all the different sort of yoga commercial styles that have come over the, the recent, uh, recent hundred years or, or so. These eight paths are, are, are broken down very, very clearly, very, very concisely. It was written by uh, Patanjali. These are his yoga sutras. The first two paths, which I won't go too much into because it'll take a little bit of time, but uh, they consist of the yamas and the niyamas, which are essentially moral codes of ethics uh, on righteous living and how to live a, a, a moral, uh, dharmic, like dutiful, righteous life. So these are things that are, for example, truthfulness, nonviolence to others, uh, cleanliness, uh, non-stealing, non-greediness, things like this. Um, and actually, these are the two, the first two limbs of the path which tend to get very neglected. So uh, if you have a very strong foundation of these moral codes of ethics, your physical and mental yoga practice will enhance and be uh, enhanced tremendously. And also for meditation um, as well, if you, this is, these two paths uh, purify the mind is what they say. Uh, when you have a pure mind, a lot of these external thoughts that tend to clutter the mind lessen naturally. Mm. So these are sort of things that help um, purify the mind, keep it clear of unnecessary thoughts, um, which allow you to focus a little bit more on your own sort of spiritual journey, your sadhana as they call in Sanskrit. Once you are solidified in that, then comes your asana practice, then comes your physical postures. Uh, asana actually means a uh, comfortable seated posture. So um, the purpose of all the postures that we, we kind of do and bending our legs behind and all that stuff is actually to prepare the body for meditation. That is the real true purpose for it. Then comes uh, pranayama, uh, the breathwork version, newly coined term. I believe my good, uh, good friend Brian is also very, yes. very good friends with you. He and the show too. He loves to talk about his friend Wim Hof as well, uh, who, is, who is a yogi himself. It's, it's nice to uh, see the, the breathwork component in recent years, like sort of uh, reach the masses. Getting a, more attention. A, yes, yeah. in a more accessible way. All these topics that we're touching on, the whole yoga practice, it's uh, beyond just the physical body. It ties into how you are physically, emotionally, mentally, and energetically as well. So these are the um, uh, dimensions that, that yoga touches on. It's definitely not an exercise form. It's treated that way because people, I guess, in fast-paced cities need that kind of rush, need that kind of physical exertion because people are feeling quite stressed and anxious. Uh, but the, generally, if you, it's a very subtle practice. It should be done softly, gently, allow the body to move the way it's supposed to move but essentially all the postures and everything is to is to prepare the body for meditation that was the purpose for it from the scriptures uh so going back to pranayam it's a tool to calm the mind to focus the mind to still the mind different types of techniques for different purposes right um there's a whole uh, subject on that, you know, breathing through different nostrils have different effects, cooling down the system and uh, heating up the system, clarity of mind, uh, generating more 
secreting adrenaline, uh, adrenaline, but also being calm and focused at the same time whenever it's needed. So using the breath as a tool to anchor the mind and the body in the direction that you need for whatever situation. And then you have uh, what we touched on earlier, pratyahara. Uh, ahara means to consume. Uh, they use the word ahara in terms of the food that, that you, you eat and the type of uh, energy you get from the food. Uh, so that's just a reference of the word ahara. Um, in yoga, they eat according to how the food makes you feel. So it's not really a moral uh, issue uh, as they see everything as one consciousness. So eating plants and, and animals, it's still one consciousness. Interesting. Um, the reason why they choose a more, for example, vegetarian diet is because uh, it doesn't stay in your system for a very long time. They want the energy to pass through. That philosophy believes in, in uh, karma and the samskaras, which are basically impressions from different lives, different entities, things like that. So, for example, if you eat an animal that is... Uh, further along the evolutionary food chain, they feel that, that that energy stays in the body for a little bit too long. And the whole process of yoga is managing your energy and utilizing it to its full potential. That, wow, that's really fascinating approach. I mean, yeah. you just you really look at your plate differently. But obviously, because we live in a city and we, we are not monks and, and, and living that kind of lifestyle, um, be very practical with your approach because I, when it comes to food and, and things like that, because... I did go through a phase personally where I was vegetarian for a little while, but I was doing some very intense exercise, physical exercise as well. I was, I was going to the gym and playing football, uh, but I was at the same time not eating certain foods that would give me a high concentration of, of nutrition uh, just because I didn't have the knowledge or education on why I was doing that and why I was not doing that. And uh, I started to feel sick and weak and mm. things like that. So then I, I switched a little bit back and adapted and made a few tweaks and to, to eat according to your lifestyle. So the whole, again, concept of yoga is don't be an extremist with it. Be sensible. Be clear. Clarity is the key word we're going to be throwing around here. And find what works. Do what works. Do what's needed. Um, most people do what they want instead of what's needed. Going back to Pratihara, sorry for the tangent. <laughs> so mastery over your five senses. So this is the mindfulness part. Uh, if we have to have a direct translation to an accessible term, it's it's very easy way to control, uh, manage your emotions, understand your feelings, um, bring yourself into uh, a clear, focused state, whatever, whatever is needed. Again, this uh, helps still the mind very very well which then brings to the next point which is dharana this is concentration concentration is the gateway to meditation there are a lot of new scientific studies that are coming out that are very aligned with the the, the teachings of yoga and vedanta and the ancient scriptures there was a um i think he was a neuroscientist on who said that uh, the eyes are literally an extension of the brain as you develop uh, in a, in in an embryo in the in the womb of of your mother, the eyes and the brain are literally one organ, the same cell. Yeah, but they're they're very very interconnected in some form or another. The reason I mention this is because um, the ability to keep the eye eyes still um, without straining the forehead, without straining the face, without straining the body or tension in the body during meditation is a very very 
a good gateway into a meditative state. So with your yeah. eyes closed, keeping your eyes still, which means do you usually focus in, on the third eye or what? You can focus in between the eyebrow center or the tip of the nostril, things like that. It helps. These are, again, little techniques, little tips. It's all preparation to be still to that gateway of sort of letting go. These techniques are very important. All of it is very important um, because it just makes meditation much easier. Maybe we can touch on the four paths of yoga because they're also interrelated. Yeah, mm -hmm. Interrelated, sorry. There are, let's say, yogis who solely focus on the knowledge, and that itself uh, is the most apparent. Like different schools of thought say that their thought is the best, their school of thought is the best, their path is the best. But you should have a, encompass all four paths. Um, which we can touch on a little yeah. later if you're interested to yeah, do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, but what I'm trying to say here is that all of it is important. You should have elements of all and not reject the other one, um, but mm. just understand how all work uh, instead of rank them in hierarchy. So uh, concentration is the gateway to meditation. Uh, still the eyes is, is a very nice little tip, stilling the eyes. And then comes dhyan. Dhyan means meditation. To make that shift between concentration and meditation, it requires this, this uh, letting go, the ability to observe without being involved with your thoughts. So that, again, as mentioned before, that makes you a witness to your thoughts. And that which is witnessing, that which is aware of the thoughts, is what you should inquire about, which is the whole who am I. Uh, exactly. So if... We're having the thoughts and we can still witness the thoughts. Are those two separate consciousness? Let's use an example, uh, the clay and pot example, which is a very good example that's used uh, all the time in Advaita Vedanta. You can have many different types of pots, but they're all made out of the same clay. So the fundamental uh, fabric of the pot is the clay, even though they have different different shapes. So similarly... We are all different pots, but come from the same clay. And that clay is that awareness, that pure consciousness, that witness uh, that is all-pervading, uh, all omnipotent, omnipresent. In Sanskrit, they call this Brahman. Brahman actually literally translates to the vast. They say that it is um, beyond um, time, space, and uh, causation. Are we made of the same clay then, our consciousness? Uh, according to Advaita Vedanta, right. they would say yes. In the scriptures, they do have different schools of thought as well, like Sankhya philosophy, uh, Advaita Vedanta philosophy, um, from which all kinds of different religions stem from, uh, Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, Christianity. At least where my, my little bit of knowledge lies is, is within the teachings of Advaita Vedanta, non-dual uh, philosophy. Can you yeah. share a scripture that has been profound for you? Yes, um, I would say that the, if anybody listening were, were to take away something from, from, you, from the teachings of yoga, let's say, it's very simple. Patanjali writes in his Yoga Sutras, uh, if someone asks, what is yoga? He says, yogas chitta vritti niroda, which literally translates to yoga. Is, chitta means the mind space, basically. Um, you can call it thoughts, feelings, emotions, etc. Uh, vritti are also considered thought, thought waves, thought patterns. Chitta is more feelings and emotions. Um, and niroda is to cease, to stop, to suspend. 
So uh, yoga is the suspension or ceasing of the modifications of the mind. It says very simply what it, what is yoga, what is the purpose of yoga. That is also the end of suffering. When you understand how the modifications of the mind work and work with it instead of against it. We can touch on meditation a little bit because this is where it gets a little bit um, uh, misconstrued because people talk about controlling the mind and things like that. If you realize when you have a thought, where does that thought come from and how does it come up? It tends to just pop up like, like as if a bubble is coming from the bottom of a lake and it pops up to the surface, right? So these thoughts essentially are not your own. They're based in your imagination, which is, can be linked to fear of the future. And it's based in memory, which is, can be linked to fear of the past. They can be pleasant states as well, right? All the thoughts that happen come from sort of the social conditioning that you've had since you are born. Those thoughts are not essentially yours because you are taken, you've taken them in from some external stimuli, process them in a certain way, and then they come up uh, every so often due to whatever reason. It's ever-changing, it's fleeting, it's not permanent. First of all, the realization of that should create some light, lightness within, within you um, because you're not bound by that. Then when you become in certain emotional states, which are very strong, because emotion is a thought plus a feeling, a physical sensation in the body, right? Lots of hormones are secreted, which creates these feelings like adrenaline, cortisol for the fight or flight response, uh, activating the sympathetic nervous system. And then the opposite, which is the rest and relax state, the parasympathetic nervous system. Again, but both uh, states are fleeting. Essentially, we want, we, pr we prefer to be in a more joyful, blissful, calmer state because it feels better. So when there is a stronger emotional state, right, the thought plus the feeling, then um, there's different ways to approach it depending on what exactly happens. But again, now we're getting quite nitty-gritty and a little bit detailed, but I think it's quite important to touch on a few tips because people do feel uh, a little bit misunderstood on how to deal with these kind of things. I myself was, was quite victim to it because growing up, uh, even playing football, uh, I would get very nervous before games and especially at a teenage, when I was a teenager, uh, being shouted at by the coach and things like that. Some people love and rise to the occasion. Some people kind of cur curl under it. It only took my, my later years to, to really understand these, understand this and how to work with it and, and utilize it instead of have it work against me. All these feelings and emotions are a natural process of being human. Uh, the first thing, let's say, for example, let's talk about fear and sort of anxiety depending on the situation, but if it's not a high pressure situation, right, if you're not really sort of a, in a physical space, let's say you're an MMA fighter or, or, or you're someone's fighting you or you have to really survive, quote unquote, uh, if you're just sort of anxious about something. In a traffic jam, in a traffic or, jam or missing a plane or something Exactly, like that. exactly. Work related relationship stuff, something that's not physically going to harm you. The first thing to do is to accept all the feelings, thoughts, and emotions. Acceptance is key. Once you accept it, you create a little bit of space for allowing you to understand. It should make you feel quite light. Allow all the thoughts, all the feelings. If you need to cry, you cry. If you need to shout, uh, shout, shout. But then once you start to accept, you'll probably realize that it's not as intense as you think it is. 
The second tip would be to sort of try and make humor out of it. I'm not these things, but I'm telling myself I'm these things. Uh, it's quite easy to get caught up in overthinking. And uh, one way to realize that you're overthinking is to smile at the situation. Um, then once you have that, you're light, you realize you're not your thoughts, you're clear in your head and you strategize. Okay, what can I do? That's where the clarity comes in. You're creating a situation where you have clarity of a little bit of clarity of mind in a, in a challenging situation there. And then you can start as, what can I do? And then you start to take consistent little action over a longer duration of time to then change your, your habits, change your environment to suit however you wish to be, which is generally a pleasant state. So for example, for myself, like, let's say I get angry, right? When I get angry, I have the feeling of anger inside me. It's that knotty feeling, mm. the chest and stomach, and it's unpleasant. The body becomes a little bit tense. Over time, I've learned that, okay, I know that I'm getting angry. I can feel that similar feeling. I tend to not work too well when I uh, let it out and ex ex explode or have, a, have an argument with someone because then I, I can debate them till the cows come home, and it doesn't benefit anyone realistically. Realizing that I'm angry is the first thing and realizing that this chemical will stay in my system for a little bit of time and accepting that. Uh, so I realize, okay, this is unpleasant. Let me keep quiet. Let me remove myself from the situation. Um, and then let me address the situation that is conducive for it being let go a little quicker, which to me is constructive communication, uh, honest transparency, things like that. So realizing these things and taking those actions, even when the feeling of anger is there, makes sense. But I also accept that generally it'll stay in my system for a couple of days. But that's just me individually. I know people who uh, pop off, explode and get angry and they want to be a friend two seconds later. And maybe that type of person has to realize that, okay, I do have these bursts of anger and then I'm, I'm friendly with a person, but... It might not be uh, conducive for my lifestyle or my relationship with that person, etc. So, and before maybe I should take certain actions to uh, manage myself before I pop off and, and explode because I know I'm usually friendly later. So you have to understand and learn about yourself, which is again meditation. You're literally sitting and being with yourself, doing nothing, observing, and you just learn about who you are, what's your personality like. What are the thoughts that are happening? What are, what are the thoughts that are not happening? How things have changed over time? How, And it's a consistent practice. Before we move on to the four paths of yoga, mm -hmm. can you share a fond memory of a spiritual teacher or a meditation teacher of yours? There are a few. There was a time in the ashram when I stayed there, and they don't really give you too clear instructions on how to meditate. You literally show up in the morning like 5 a.m. In, in the hall, sit down, say, close your eyes, breathe through your nostrils, and you're silent for about an hour. It's not until you go and inquire for yourself. They want you to be the person asking questions, and I didn't realize that till later. Uh, one, of the, one of the swamis there, I told him, I'm like, I'm sitting there, and I'm concentrating for like an hour, and my face is straining, and I don't know what's happening. I'm not getting it. This was happening for weeks. And he said, no, 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 you're doing it, you're doing it wrong. It, uh, in meditation, you should... You should just be relaxed. You, you, ha you should have no tension in the body. You should uh, let go, as we discussed earlier. That was a big aha moment for me because we were doing a lot of physical practice, doing a lot of breathing. And then when it came to the meditation and I made that little shift, 
I, I felt a big difference. This ties into a little description that a famous guru called Sadhguru talks about meditation. He says, if you want to grow um, flowers, uh, you do not think about the flowers. You think about uh, the soil, the manure, the water, the sunlight, the time, mm. and then the flower blossoms. So similarly, in for meditation, you think about your mind, your body, your emotions, your energies, and it happens as a consequence. You become meditative as a person. That's so nice. So yeah, I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. And to go another step deeper and to go into that whole philosophical uh, analysis of the scriptures, there's a Swami called Swami Sarva Priyananda who says, be aware of what you are not and rest in what you are. So that, that again was a little light bulb moment for myself. I, I'm aware I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I'm not my emotions. Then, then who am I? What am I? And you rest in that awareness. So how did you explore that? It's very hard to articulate into words. Uh, it has to be experienced. There's an intellectual understanding of the concepts, which is kind of what we're trying to do now, deliver this intellectual mm -hmm. understanding. But that is nothing without experiential understanding. And that comes with that self-inquiry, that self-practice. Yeah, I remember asking you that early on in the previous conversation, and you were very cautious to actually not describe the actual experience because it is so individualized it's advised not to share your meditative experiences with people actually this is a good good uh, tangent to go off onto some practical steps because we are on meditation anyway with yeah. the eight eight limbs eight parts oh, and number seven right now so generally uh certain times of the day are advised to practice um early morning before sunrise if people want to do that uh actually midday is also okay and uh, evening time but again be sensible be practical about it uh, if you have things to do this is very important if you have things to do do not rush and force um, to do it because again you don't want to be caught up in feeling stressed when doing meditation meditation should not be something when you uh, you feel stressed about like oh I didn't do my practice at this time today and and then you start freaking out and no it should not be like that mm. So if you wake up one day and you have to take care of the kids or you have to do the laundry and you have a meeting to go to, take care of all that stuff first. And then later on in the day when you have some time, practice. But at the same time, I would say if you, if you prioritize meditation, if you make the effort to prioritize it over everything, relationships, work, family, everything, it will only enhance all those other elements as well. Environment is important. Try and have a, a consistent, same, the same consistent space in the house. It could be in the corner of the room. Having it, it should be sort of a discipline without rigidity, as I mentioned. So consistent sort of timing, consistent space. Try not to mix and match up your practice too much as well. What do you mean by mix so and like, match? Let's say I'm going to do this kind of breathing and then this kind of posture one day and then another one another day and things like that. Have a have a, a solid base of what you're trying to do um, and keep it consistent. I used to get hooked up on setting like the same time every day. But, you know, when you're saying it, when it's not so important, like it just should not bring you stress. The idea of meditation should not bring you stress. Right? Definitely, yeah. So should we move on to the four paths of yoga? Sure, yeah. Essentially, they say there are four paths of, of yoga to attain this liberation or God realization or 
how, however you want to define it. Uh, there's the path of karma yoga. Uh, this is selfless service, selfless action. It's quite interesting. Physical action of selfless work is one thing, but the intention behind the selfless action is another thing. It takes brutal honesty for oneself uh, to, to admit it or to own up to it or to say whether it exists or not. But generally, if someone does some charity work, uh, it makes them also feel quite good. So it's not 100% selfless, you know? At least my definition of, let's say, the word love is total selfless action without any expectation of anything in return. There's generally this, I'll do this for you and it's a lovely thing and it'll make you feel very good. But it also makes me feel good. And I also have an expectation for you to sort of do something with what I've done for you. So that's not totally selfless. So they say in yoga, the intention behind the action is also as important as the action. Mm. And karma yoga is one of the fastest, most effective ways to purify the mind, as discussed before, for meditation. When you have a lot of thoughts... A lot of things in your mind and and uh, it's like restless chatter. Do consistent selfless action and that will also lessen. So a good analogy is that if you have uh, two magnets and they, they're supposed to connect with one another, if one more of the magnet is covered in a bit of mud, the magnet will not uh, click together, it will not connect. Uh, so karma yoga is the removal of that mud so that the magnets can connect. It's a very beautiful way of depicting these uh, uh, these messages, these this knowledge. Another path of yoga is uh, the path of devotion. Uh, this is called bhakti. Uh, this can be called uh, uh, devotion to God. A lot of gurus say that this is uh, actually the fastest and the wisest way to reach liberation. Because if you see these people who uh, are truly just devoted and uh, surrender, like have this let let go, and it's not not in my control type of uh, attitude. Um, they're very joyful. They're happy. They're joyful. They live simple simple lives. They're not overthinking, so they're not worried about things. Uh, they go kind of a little bit with the flow. Whether that's that's wise or not is subjective to the person. Right. I, I don't know the answer. Uh, they have no need to know because they feel fulfilled inside. So they've sort of reached that peace in their mind then there's the path of raj yoga so raj yoga is the science of yoga so this is what we talk about the, the ashtanga yoga which by the way we we missed one little step after meditation comes samadhi which is that enlightenment which also right. has different stages to it apparently as well so yes i'm not too uh, well versed in that so that's the science of yoga you see and here and all these stories of, of these uh, Himalayan yogis and the things they can do with their body temperature, their, their, uh, their movement, everything. It's, it's fascinating. So it's, a, it's the whole science of using this system to its full potential. And then comes the path of Gyan uh, Yoga, path of knowledge. According to Advaita Vedanta, this is, this is key. This is understanding truth, understanding you don't need anything else, basically. Famous teachers like Ramakrishna and Adi Shankaracharya, the way they teach is doesn't involve the science of yoga too much. They just in, just go inside and inquire, who am, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I? And the more you inquire about that, things slowly unfold and, and it comes to you. It, it puts you on the path to search. 
Um, and I think we're all on that. We're all, if you're, if you, you're having this podcast, you're interested in these kind of things, you're also on the path. And once you're on it, it's very hard to get off. I don't think it's possible to get off. Yeah, it's a nice ride. But at the end of the day, when all said is done, the knowledge is, is what really remains because uh, that is the, the mm. truth, capital T, which I don't know that yet. I haven't, I haven't experienced that yet myself. I may intellectually understand concepts that um, through the teachings of yoga and Vedanta make sense and I've applied those in my life and they have worked. So through inference, I can infer that so far these teachings that I, that I have uh, intellectually understood and then experientially understood and work, which could also mean that these other things that I don't yet understand have potential to work as well. So for those who want to get started on meditation and yoga, how would you suggest them to dive into it? I would say that keep it very simple to start with. If you uh, can find a teacher at the beginning, it's very helpful. A good teacher who actually lives the practice, not just teaches the practice, mm -hmm. who, who, who lives and experiences life as a yogi, but then practically 10 minutes a day, set aside, consistent time, consistent place, connect with your breath, still the mind first, uh, doing, do any, do some maybe gentle movement. You can do some gentle breathing. You can learn these breathing techniques from uh, a teacher or even online. But again, don't, don't get too into it. Nothing crazy, nothing big, just something that makes you feel calm and relaxed and then sit with yourself for about 10 minutes a day and uh, start to observe, start to witness and see what unfolds. Uh, be consistent with it. Give yourself at least two months every day. How are you balancing your path between the material world and the spiritual path? In, in yoga, they call this material world, they call it maya. How, how do I find a balance between that? I think it's been a progression over the past 10 years. I've had to deal with key different states throughout the, the journey, I guess, at different periods of time in my life. So uh, maybe several years ago, anger was a key uh, hurdle to understand and overcome. And um, we were just talking right now that uh, at this point in my life, I think r the removal of fear or at least understanding of fear is has been a pivotal point, which is uh, something that I, uh, is the next phase that is sort of being overcome currently. You previously also mentioned, you know, you used to just fake it till you make it, right? And yeah, there was a little bit of, maybe before there was a little less authenticity in, in what I was doing and trying to impress some other people. Uh, whereas now uh, the intention behind my actions is a little bit more, maybe purer. Uh, I have less to prove to, to others and it doesn't drain my, my energy so much. When you have this sort of shift it, it doesn't you have a little bit more energy you can do a bit more it's not being wasted in unnecessary directions and unnecessary things and it's so important to surround ourselves with the right people too right to nurture that yes absolutely i totally i totally agree with you there they say you're the sum of the five people that you surround yourself with uh, maybe you're not literally the sum but they definitely definitely influence you um, and I feel very blessed. I feel very lucky. I have a very good close circle of, of people that uh, help me when, when, when I need it. And hopefully I can help them as well when, when they need it. I think that was a, an important part 
to structure your life in a way such that it is effective for your own personal growth and your own go, uh, short-term and long-term goals and purpose as well. Did you intentionally choose those people in your close circle? How did it evolve? I did. I identified a value system that I felt was very important for me. I also identified what I needed and also what made me feel at ease and gave me energy instead of drained my energy. So for example, uh, flexibility in schedule was very important for me. I didn't want work to feel too much like work and I wanted work to have flexibility to it. I thought to myself, okay, what am I passionate about? What, what, what does the world need? Again, this whole find your ikigai kind of thing, right? What does ikigai mean? So ikigai uh, is a Japanese concept uh, that means your reason for being, the reason you wake up in the morning. I, again, it's sort of a blueprint to, to identify what it is that you would like to do and find your purpose in life. It's a very simple diagram and it's a crossover where you, your, your passion, your, your purpose, your, what you can do to add value to others and what you can do to make a, make a living off of, sort of intertwined together. That's a great word. Yeah. So at our studio, we chose that name because we felt that health and wellness is a medium to help people find their ikigai. So uh, I feel very blessed. Again, my, my, the business partner that I have is, is, is amazing. He's a genius entrepreneur. Uh, shout out to Emmerich, Emmerich Volan. Very, very good person. Very intelligent. Uh, we, we work very, very well together. I have like uh, the, my close circle, which is, which is my family and, and uh, my wife-to-be as well, um, who, who really know probably the truth, me in my rawest form. Uh, they've seen the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, and they still accept me. So I, uh, I feel very lucky like that and, and want, uh, want to respect them and keep them close. There, there are people in my life who, have, who I like to surround with in terms of uh, physical training. Uh, football is a big part of my life. I, I love the sport. It, it, it brings out that sort of alpha side in you, the, the competitiveness. And uh, I, I like that feeling every so often. It's it's a game of feeling, emotion, and 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 strategy, and and all these kind of things. And um, there are people in my life as well who who I learn from regarding that. And of course, I I pay the biggest respect to my guru, my teachers, who have uh, helped me stay on this path where there's a lot of distractions outside, and and to stay focused on it. Uh, Would you like to share the names of your gurus? Yeah, so my, my guru is a teacher called Arvind, Arvind Singh. He's extremely wise, extremely humble, extremely knowledgeable. He's not, you know, commercially famous or anything like that. He should be, in my opinion. I think the, the world would benefit from hearing his, mm -hmm. his talks 10 times more than mine. Um, I have a lot of respect for his grace that, that he's blessed, blessed me with. Oh, that's wonderful. How long did it take you to form your inner circle? It took several. It took several years. Um, it did. It was a lot of fine tuning and tweaking, and and it's still it's still always ever changing. Yeah. But I mean, I also have friends who I grew up with who you I don't see that often, but I don't need to see them that often because when you see them again, you're like yeah, they're like your brothers and sisters. You know, we so. love those friendships, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Gianna, we're going to wrap up this interview with a few rapid questions. Rapid question. Yes. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, what is the book that you have gifted the most or made a big impression on you? Actually, to be honest, I don't read too much. But if I were to recommend a book related to what we've talked about, I would say read the, the Bhagavad Gita. 
Um, it's one of the most well-known texts in uh, Hindu and uh, Indian and yogic history and philosophy. The best lesson your mom or your dad taught you? I think my mom uh, instilled uh, a lot of confidence uh, in me when I didn't have it. She always believed in, in myself and my brother and always saw the best in us. So uh, I guess that sort of maybe allowed me subconsciously to see good in others as well. Um, and my mom is very, very strong-willed. So when challenging situations come up to also learn how to step up uh, and be courageous, um, I think I think that I, I learned that from her. And then I think for my dad, is he's much more left brain, very analytical, very very logical, and he's a very good human being with good good value good value system. So I think I learned that from both of them. What is your idea of wellness? I think wellness is it, it's a three sixty degree lifestyle. It's not one thing. It's not one and not the other. It's all encompassing. It's an exploration. It's um, uh, something that should be celebrated. Definitely do something to physically look after your body. Definitely do something to look after your mind. Eat well. Sleep well. Interact with other people. See them as an extension of yourself if possible. Very difficult to do all the time. I feel that sometimes when it's like crowded and central. And have some sort of connection to that which you don't understand yet as well i think something this is the devotional aspect i would say if you look if you look at all super successful like let's just say athletes or mma fighters they they are religious in a certain way we won't dive into the concept of religion at all but there's a reason why they are at that elite level and they're champions it's because they they always have something to connect to that goes beyond their family, their their relationships, their all these sort of objective things that we put on a pedestal. There's something more for them to tune into that gives them strength, that gives them courage, that gives them power, that gives them something. You can choose however you want to define that, or you can even admit that I do not know. So I think that would be the fifth little element for a wellness experience. Tune into that which you do not fully understand yet and and uh, have that element as part of your wellness lifestyle and experience. Well, thank you so much for sharing that insight and, and your passion on meditation. So I want to give a shout out to your studio, Ikigai. Thank you. And can you tell us about your space? Um, well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, yes, so Ikigai is a boutique um, wellness studio concept that myself and my uh, partner co-founded a little over a year ago. We have one location in Chimsa Choi, um, and we're about to open our second location in Central um, before the end of this year. We really like the whole bespoke boutique feel of the studio concept. We we The classes are uh, in Central, at least, we'll only have 15 mats. Per class, so the teacher can really look after every student and give them a, a good experience. Um, we offer mainly three pillars of classes that that people can access: yoga, physical yoga practice, m- different forms of meditative practices, which include like breath work, sound, um, traditional meditation, mindfulness, things like that. 
and then also movement-based practices, which is a little bit more of a physical uh, strength, uh, range of motion, functional uh, movement of the body. Can you share the reason behind you don't have mirrors in the studio? Because I love that. Yeah, we don't have mirrors in the studio. Um, the idea is to um, tune inwards, not really look at yourself too much. We have these Ocher signature orange-colored walls as well, um, which resemble the the robes and of the color of the robes of the monks and sages and sannyasins that. Uh, we we feel very blessed to have all this knowledge for and to show respect to that. Uh, the one in Central will have a little bit more features than the uh, the one in Chimset Choi. So we will have some, some small little reception area, lockers, showers, a uh, little pantry as well. But I think the main thing that we, we feel very proud of that we've done in Chimset Choi so far is that we've really built a community that is humble, authentic. Everybody knows each other's names there. They're friendly, they made friends and relationships. So we want to hopefully expand on that. Where can people find you? People can find Ikigai on Instagram at ikigai.hk. Uh, if you want to follow me, feel free. I don't post that much, but feel free to follow me. Um, it's just my first and last name together, Gianni Malwani, at Gianni Malwani. So I'll put all this in the show notes and our audience can go there cool, and great. check it out. Um, any closing thoughts that you would like to share that perhaps I didn't touch on that you think? Um, you would like? Actually, yes, there was one thing. When we talked about addressing stressful situations, as I said, when we you're not in physical danger, it's more of that acceptance approach and then understanding and then strategizing and making humor of it. When you are in a physically dangerous situation and fear kicks in, it's wise to approach that with courage. So when you approach those situations where it's anxious, stressful and fearful with that acceptance approach, it's not practical. So when, when the stress is is quite high, you have to... Again, it's a practice. Learn how to be courageous in those situations and, and rise to those occasions. Uh, use those feelings to work with you and help you overcome that. that that's just a little thought that popped yeah, in my head great. before. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for touching back on that yeah. because that is the other side of the yeah. situation, right? Ray, thank you so much again for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. The show notes of this episode are on my website, www.interested.blog. I love receiving your messages. They encourage me to continue bringing you helpful wellness content and to help others find the podcast too. If you like my work, hit subscribe and share it with a friend.